Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Thank you, David. And also back, frequent guest and producer on the podcast and senior editor for brand marketing, Christina Monlos. Welcome back, Christina. Hello. Hello, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, today we are going to be talking about, we got a little more Halloween news that's going to be airing right before Halloween. So hopefully you're listening to it around then because we got some fun stuff in that space. And of course, the best ads of the week. And uh, then we're going to be talking about our hot list, our annual hot list, where we look at the hottest things across uh, TV, digital, and now publishing. So we're going to be talking about our picks uh, in the hottest of publishing for 2017. It's going to be fun, both digital and print. But first, the news. All right. One of the biggest uh, media accounts in the world is up for grabs. This is McDonald's. Uh, it, this account has not been in review since 2003. Uh, it's been with uh, OMD, the Omnicom-owned media agency, for about 14 years. Uh, this is estimated between about a $1.75 billion and a $2 billion media account. It is massive. I think by one estimate, Patrick Coffey, our editor who wrote up the story on Adweek.com, said that uh, they spend about a billion in America alone. Uh, so this is about as big as it gets. The bad news, I guess, for especially for OMD, which has the account at the moment, is that they're going to be breaking it up. Uh, McDonald's essentially said, we're not going to have one mega agency across the entire globe. Uh, we're going to have a handful. I don't think they really specified a number of more specialty shops. Uh, so this creates a lot of opportunity for other companies. Uh, it almost certainly means the, that OMD, the, the, again, the media agency that has it, is probably going to lose some of that work, if not all of it. Uh, but man, every holding company, uh, almost literally every holding company in the world that owns ad agencies is pitching this one because, and they're probably all going to be like, hey, look at all these specialty shops and, you know, Hispanic marketing and digital marketing and influencer marketing and, you know, just kind of throwing everything they can at it uh, in different regional markets. Uh, so this is definitely one of the biggest uh, kind of balls in the air that we've seen in a long time. They say that they are going to be creating money through this by getting efficiency, uh, by splitting it up into specialty stuff. And they've also dropped their sponsorship of the Olympics as a global sponsor. And between all that, they say they're going to have a lot more money to spend on digital. I guess what surprised me about this is McDonald's, in terms of creative agencies, has been going the other way. They've been consolidating uh, all, all of their work within Omnicom. Uh, they, DDB, the agency that they've been working with a lot, created an entire specialty agency called We Are Unlimited uh, that will exist just for McDonald's. Uh, on the content side. So, I don't know, Tim and, and Christina, this one kind of struck me as just a bit of, you know, they seem to be going in both directions, wanting to consolidate creative, but wanting to split up media. What, what did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, you know, normally when you uh, when you want to achieve efficiencies, which is they've, they've flat out said this, this media review is about achieving more efficiencies, you work with fewer partners. Uh, which is, as you say, what they've done creatively. Um, you know, clearly they're not happy on some level um, with, 
you know, having, uh, you know, non-local agencies sort of handle local markets. It seems like that's the story here. And, and they may end up achieving efficiencies in the sense of, of better results with more agencies that know those markets more, you know, more intimately. Um, yeah, but it, it is an unusual thing. I mean, Omnicom was celebrating, you know, a year ago when, when you know they when McDonald's ditched all of their non Omnicom uh, creative shops and decided to go with DDB, which then became you know the the, the specialty agency you mentioned. Now now they're faced with losing uh, potentially billions uh, in media business. So yeah, not a great day for for Omnicom. Although we'll see, maybe maybe OMD uh, will surprise us and, and retain a bulk a bulk of this. But I also think this is kind of a recognition of the fact that media isn't as simple as it used to be, especially as these giant brands are trying to, you know, make sure that they are wherever, you know, their target market is is looking. And that's not as easy as it used to be, especially when, you know, in different countries, you have different platforms that are more important. WeChat in Asia, where it's, it's more Facebook over here, that sort of stuff. I mean, it's sometimes just as simple as, you know, within South America, like Brazil is a very different market than the rest of South America, uh, you know, and, and especially... Man, when you get into Asia, as you mentioned, it's it's very different regions. Uh, and, and we've talked about this recently, too, that there's been this trend over the last few years that brands are wanting to make these kind of global ads that can run anywhere. That's why we joke about this, because as a podcast about advertising, we like to be able to drop in audio uh, from ads. But the problem is so many now either have no audio whatsoever, you know, or they're just music. And a lot of that is so, oh, well, we can put this ad anywhere. We can, uh, you know, we can play it in any country. And the characters always look kind of vaguely like, you know, they could be a lot of from a lot of different places. Uh, and so, you know, I think they've been trying that, but there are a lot of limitations to that. Now, Tim, on the other hand, that creatively, I think McDonald's has been doing some of its best work ever with visuals, uh, you know, in terms of like these kind of minimalist uh, ads, the trend that we've seen in the last few years, those could work almost anywhere. They could. Um, the, you know, the most impressive McDonald's uh, advertising I've seen lately has come, actually come out of TBWA Paris. Uh, for years, they've done that sort of minimalist visual advertising, and it's really, it's really, really interesting. You know what? What we are unlimited is doing uh, in the U.S. is a lot of data-driven stuff. You know, they have internally at that agency, they have this thing they call the Cortex, where uh, they they you know have this proprietary software where they're just kind of cranking out uh, insights uh, around their target base. And, you know, it, it produced, you know, this year it produced like the Mindy Kaling work where they had that kind of Google tie-in. Uh, and they're definitely intro introducing some interesting new uh, creative executions. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly you can't get more universal than the, than the TBWA Paris stuff, which is just pictures of the product and the packaging with almost no branding at all. The uh, yeah, I, and I do wonder if this is going to start. You know, we're just coming out of a period that a lot of people called the media palooza, where all these massive media accounts were up for grabs, and tons of. I mean, the portfolio of of where the money is in the media world changed dramatically over the last few years, and then things finally calmed down, and now uh, things are blowing up. McDonald's is only one of several. I think we're going to hear about a few more uh, breaking in the next few days that are at the billion dollar plus level. Uh, so it's on the one hand, it's a really scary time to be in that industry in the media industry. On the other, it's, uh, I guess, pretty exciting and a lot of opportunities there. But uh, I mean, listen to any CMO right now and they're all just complaining about, you know, media waste. And if if you are on the media side of things, I would definitely be trying to make your client happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and when they say things like oh 5 to 10 we think 5 to 10% of our of our budget is being wasted like you know the it's just being kind of lost. Man, when you're spending 2 billion dollars, 5%, they spend a few hundred million here and a few hundred million there. It starts to become real money. Uh, all right. Well, we want to move on to uh, slightly more fun stuff. Uh, Stranger Things, I believe, is coming back for season two. It okay, it's already back by the time you listen to this. <laughs> but I say that because Lord, has there been a lot of marketing for this thing, and it seems like everyone on earth who can possibly co-brand with this thing is doing it. Christina, you got to take part in one of the more notable ones, uh, which is their partner Netflix's partnership with Lyft. Uh, to it, where they offered a strange mode for people riding. So you got to do this, right? 
I did. I did get to do it. I'm one of the few New Yorkers who got to do it because they're not actually doing it in New York. Oh, man. Wait, I just called myself a New Yorker and I feel wrong. (laughs) I feel like that's wrong. Even though I've lived here for 10 years, it feels wrong. Anyway, (laughs) this makes up for you making fun of me the other day for saying (laughs) implying that I'm a New Yorker because I go there a lot. (laughs) You guys. uh Oh, I feel like I set myself up for a burn on myself. I guess. I don't know. So anyway. so they offered, they made an exclusive, somewhat exclusive offer for you to ride a lift in strange mode. And what happened? Uh, well, I, I took our tech reporter, Marty Swant, with me because if there's anyone who would enjoy something weird like that, it's him. <laughs> um, we basically got into a lift and had, you know, this guy driving it. And it, it starts off with, you know, your driver acting as if everything is normal. And then he pulls over to the side of the road to be like oh man there's a glitch with the system and you can see that his phone um i had a male driver so i don't know if the other drivers will be male but anyway um the phone like turned red and it started being super glitchy and then there were you know static sounds that were coming through the radio and so You know, you think for a second, oh, man, like maybe the car is just messed up. But then your driver like starts to act as if he's gotten sick and he pukes up up slugs, which is (laughs) really a lot. It's a lot. Is this happening to people who don't know that it's a gag? No. So... It did happen to people who didn't know it was a gag so that Lyft could create this video where it was genuine reactions from people. But, like, who knows? It could have been actors. It was probably actors. But um, even if they won't say it's actors, I would bet it's actors. Um, Anyway, so they did that. But the people who are requesting strange mode this weekend, um, and it's only really available in Philadelphia and Los Angeles – those people will know that this is this yeah. is what they're getting. Yeah. So I I just knew that things were going to get weird. I didn't know how weird they were going to get. Um, from from slug throw up, you move on to um, your seat kind of like sh- shaking back and forth, and then it gets like kind of like violently shakes back and forth a little bit. And then there's, um, like, the lights flicker and the um, in, the, in the middle, in the middle console where the armrest situation, you guys, I don't own a car, so I, <laughs> I haven't really thought of, of that in a while. I don't know. Anyway, um, like, a, a, like a creepy demon hand pops out of that, and then... Um, you know, from the ceiling, it looks as if something is like trying to come down into the car from the ceiling. And then you have um, these uh, people in hazmat suits show up to each side of the car with, you know, with like uh, flashlights and then waffles to hand you. So <laughs> it's, this. it's really weird. And I say Stick waffles. Home. Because I made a point of asking if it was an Eggo waffle, and they said no, it was off-brand. So <laughs> there's that. But the the Stranger Things theme music plays. It's I don't know. It's like it's fun. I screamed. I was genuinely kind of scared because to like have someone show up to the side of your of the car if you're like not looking right there, and to like be tapping on the window and hand you a waffle, even if you're expecting it. I don't know. I was nervous. That is I was creepy. nervous about that. So is this a better ad for Stranger Things or for Lyft? Um, I think it's a better ad for Lyft, to be honest, because I I don't know about you guys, but I am so tired of Stranger Things and I don't I'm not even excited for the second season anymore. Like I was excited because I liked the first season, but then seeing how much marketing has gone into the second season has just i don't know i'm burnt out on it and i haven't even been able to watch the second season yet yeah christina and i have been joking over slack about um a a headline for a story um you know is stranger things 2 the new anchorman 2 because it really feels (laughs) that way like so much marketing 
And, you know, I guess the difference is that I think on the whole, the, the Stranger Things executions have actually been mostly pretty good versus Anchorman 2 where there was so much kind of dreck in there. Uh, it's hard to begrudge them for doing this much. And I think partly it's that we see so much of it. And I'm not sure the ordinary consumer would feel like it's oversaturated, but we certainly do. Yeah. And, and then let's talk about a few of the other things uh, that are happening. Uh, it's one of those where as a, as I was preparing for this podcast, like we were still publishing more. Yeah, I wrote more. another one like an hour ago. <laughs> There's so many. Um, we've got Snapchat has two Stranger Things lenses. One is... Uh, kind of where you look around is it's more augmented reality where you're kind of looking around Joyce Byers, uh, which is Winona Ryder's character, looking around the living room, uh, which you know is, to me is a very season one thing, but I don't I don't know the plot of season two, so maybe she's still got a messed up living room. Uh, but you can interact with the living room, which I thought was kind of cool. You can like tap the screen on certain things, and books will fall off shelves. And uh, and then they also have a more kind of standard uh, lens where uh, you just point it at yourself and it gives you a nosebleed. <laughs> so <laughs> to gross be like, to be like 11 but yeah it's one of those where i was like man uh you have no context of this like a lot of this stuff like when you said the guy started throwing up slugs and nosebleeds like it, we're really banking on people having watched the show to understand any of this the the slug vomit was kind of a closing scene of season one uh which but i assume obviously we're going to come back to that in season two but that's literally just for the record the only scene my son cannot watch in uh in uh, Harry Potter 2 uh, is when Ron starts throwing up slugs. <laughs> like anything else that my kids are fine with, but that's it. They're like, the, I cannot watch this. So there's just something universal about that. I don't think there should be more than one one thing where a character throws up slugs. Like if that's a thing, don't make that a thing in another thing. Yeah. and it, that's It's so specific. It was kind of a callback to some other movies too, like from the, you know, obviously all of Stranger Things. It's like one big callback to the 80s. And um, there were a few movies, uh, you know, I don't quite remember the exact names, but that had this kind of slugs in your mouth thing. And then there was um, Slither, which was a, a, a similar kind of throwback uh, that uh, was more modern, had Nathan Fillion, and uh, but yeah, that one was slugs in people's mouths. I, I, there's just something weird, like as a culture, we seem to keep going back to that visual. But I think we're good. As long I think as we're we good don't do <laughs> Tremor, is that the one? Tremors, with... yeah. Ugh. Tremors. Gross. As long as we don't do that again, I'll be okay. What? What's wrong with Tremors? Is just like the worms under the ground. What? What is that? I re- I really don't like. I don't. I, I'm not down with worms everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't like things going in the ear. I think Wrath of Khan still gets me. Anything in the ear, anything that pops up on Reddit where it's like, look at this stuff coming out of someone's ear. I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, before we gross anybody else out, Tim, tell us about the other Stranger Things activation you wrote about. Oh, I just wrote quickly about the the Google campaign. that Netflix teamed up with Google. And they made a Google Home game where it, it turns your Google Home into a walkie-talkie, and you talk to Justin, and he, t- he tells you, he asks you questions, and uh, apparently they got a ton of the cast to do the, the voices for this game. And you play it as you binge watch season two. After every episode, you say, "Hey Google, um, let me talk to to Dustin from from Stranger Things," and he asks you where you're at. I think in in this in the series, and and if you if you answer enough questions correctly, you get to be. In, I don't know, you get something, you get to be in some fictional uh, club, AV club, I guess it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could go on. There's probably 15 other things we've written about <laughs> as well. Well, definitely check out adweek.com. We've got so many Stranger Things stories. And like I said, by now it'll, it'll be out. Um, I've actually been rewatching uh, season one. It doesn't hold up as well on a second watching. I, I think so much of the fun of that show is not knowing what's going to happen and the tension and when there's not that tension, you just kind of roll with it. It's mildly entertaining. The acting is great. I really appreciate the acting when I go back and watch season one, especially with the kids. But you know what I mean? It's just it lacks some of that. So I'm, I'm mildly excited to have season two just to have something else. Uh, but, but, you know, with season one, we didn't really know how dark it was going to get. Like, is this is this the kind of show that will kill a kid, you know, or is it not? Like, you just don't know these days because so many shows are so dark. Uh, but... Yeah, I, and Netflix doesn't really seem to have hard or fast rules for that kind of thing. I mean, with what we saw with Thirteen Reasons Why, they were just like, "Yeah, let's do it." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. seriously. Yeah, it's gotten to be where, like, I, I when I start a show, 
there's the can I watch this comfortably with my mother-in-law and like you know basically the how graphic is this show going to get um, and the, you know they just Netflix doesn't have those traditional ratings Mm-mm. or anything so sometimes you're on your own it's just like hey give it a shot see see what freaks you out uh, speaking of freaking out I did want to mention Burger King's got another fun uh, Halloween stunt coming although it's again like the uh, lift stunt with Stranger Things is very limited in scope. Uh, but they're going to be giving free Whoppers to people who dress as clowns for Halloween uh, on Halloween in four cities at specific lo- – or three three cities? I think five um, five cities in the U.S. It's also happening overseas. In fact, the okay. the idea for this campaign came from uh, Mullen Lowe, I believe, over in, in Spain. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so kind of a different thing. And it's happening in, I think, six or seven European markets. You can't, European idea, but Burger King is pretty good at translating that, or at least when, when, the, when a good idea comes from one of its European agencies, uh, it considers whether it could work for the U.S., and they've decided this one can. So uh, at one location in each of the cities, uh, Miami, uh, Boston, L.A., Austin, Texas, and Salt Lake City, on Tuesday night from 7 to th- p.m. to 3 a.m., the first 500 people uh, dressed as clowns will get free Whoppers at, at one location in, in each of those cities. So um, it's, you know, obviously a dig at McDonald's, and it's something Burger King's been doing a little bit lately. There was, um, we wrote about another uh, campaign that was pretty funny uh, from Germany, actually, where um, folks who were watching this, the, the movie It, the Stephen King adaptation, uh, right after the movie was over and before the credits rolled, uh, 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 the, this message came up on screen that said, um, moral of the story, uh, never trust a clown. And then it said, the, it threw up the Burger King logo. So Burger King seems to be... And then it, and then it threw up slugs. <laughs> <laughs> so Burger King's pretty uh, into tweaking uh, Ronald and, and, and the entire McDonald's uh, folks lately. Kind of funny. Yeah, and it's, we, we were talking about this before the podcast that, uh, like, Burger King uses the Ronald McDonald more than McDonald's does now. <laughs> yeah. Like, you never see him. I think they've quasi-retired him as an ad character. He's just more of a brand icon, uh, but you don't really see him in ads anymore. And yeah. But Burger King's just like, don't never forget. <laughs> Although it is going to be a big Halloween for clowns, you know, uh, in, in light of Pennywise. So yeah, kind of yeah, a cool, smart. cool timing. Yeah. All right. Well, it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, ads worth watching. Tim, what have you got for us this week? Under Armour has a new global endorser, and um, her name is Yusra Mardini, and she's got kind of almost as wild of a life story as she does an athletic story. Um, And she's also a pretty great narrator of her life story, uh, which we found out uh, in the new 90-second spot that, that recently came out. Uh, so Yusra is a Syrian swimmer. Um, she actually swam for Rio uh, in Rio for the refugee Olympic team uh, last year. She's, I think she's 19 now. Uh, she grew up in Damascus in Syria, and she, for many years, um, swam for the Syrian uh, team at the World Swimming Championships uh, before, you know, I think, I think it was before the Civil War started. So she swam back in 2012 at the World Championships, but didn't have a chance to compete internationally because of the Civil War. Uh, and her house was destroyed, and she and her sister um, tried to flee Syria about two years ago. I think it was August of 2015, Uh, but the boat they were on, I believe the boat was going from Turkey to Greece. The boat um, basically sank, or or sort of half sank. I think the motor stopped running, and it was little more than a dinghy, and I think it began to take on water, and she... Uh, Yusra and her sister and a couple of other folks got in the water and basically swam and pulled the boat with them for, uh, I think it was about three hours until they got to Greece. So they were, they were a long way from shore. And, you know, she was a, an accomplished swimmer before this and, you know, uh, put her, you know, her ability to use to save her life and the life of the people on the boat. And it's really a remarkable story. Um, and she talks about it in this commercial. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of it. Um, this is Yusra Mardini uh, for Under Armour. I shouldn't be alive today. I should have been killed by the bomb that hit the pool in Damascus. I should have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. I should have been one of the many faceless refugees who died along the way. But I am here, alive, because I kept moving. So many things tried to stop me, to break me. So many times something whispered, this, now this will defeat you. 
but I kept moving. I mean, I was, I think, Christina, you were the one who, who initially sent me this spot, and it was so remarkable to see an Under Armour spot that kind of takes you by surprise. You know, we've seen so many Under Armour ads uh, over the years. In the last three or four years, have been so good. And this one, she's a remarkable voiceover narrator. And she's also, you know, the way that she looks at the camera with this defiance and this supreme confidence. I mean, she's an amazing, at 19, she's just an amazing presence. Uh, she's also a UN Goodwill Ambassador. So, she, you know, a lot of folks have clearly seen um the powerful person behind, you know, this, this wild story. Um, another interesting tidbit is that um, this spot was actually made by the German agency Nordpol, uh, which handles a lot of local uh, UA advertising, uh, but it looks like a Droga spot. So Nordpol is obviously, I was obviously told to uh, kind of make it this global spot, you know, in, in the Droga style. And they did you know, a pretty nice job with that. They did. And they, you know, what's kind of incredible about this is if you think about last year, we had, you know, the Michael Phelps ad, and it was so, I don't know, what it did with swimming and with Under Armour and, you know, Droga's work, it it made this, like, very clear statement. And this almost feels like it's in the same style, but it's opposite. And it's not just because she's a woman, and it's not just because she's young and, you know, at the an earlier part of her career it's it's because of the the way that they use her voiceover mm-hmm. you know yeah um i think they found they found someone who is able to do something that most honestly most athletes aren't able to do that kind of voiceover because it feels like true acting mm-hmm. or at least it feels like she's being so authentically herself in voiceover for an ad, which, you know, I'm sure most people might roll their eyes at, but to be able to, to get that kind of authenticity through in an ad, I don't know. I always find that really impressive. Absolutely. Like an overnight sensation just from this commercial. I mean, her story has been pretty well known. Um, even though she didn't, you know, she didn't exactly stand out athletically in Rio. I think she, she won a heat, but I think she only finished 41st out of 45 swimmers in her, in her event. But, um, you know, just her story of, of getting to, to the Olympics. And then obviously she is such a presence on film, both visually and in the voiceover. Um, Christina, you and I were talking about how it was the best UA spot we'd seen in quite a while. So, yeah, I mean, like, I wish the Droga work that they did with Misty um, a couple months ago was, was better. I, I, you know, I, I don't think it was all, all that great. Um, but yeah, it, was this, like, it was like spo- she was like dancing to spoken word poetry, right? Yeah, and that just didn't click for me. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't work as well. Um, and maybe maybe that was because there was a disconnect because between the poetry and her. I don't know, um, but this this one is it, it is poetic in its own way, I guess, minus actual poetry. But totally <laughs> totally so agree. so much of the yeah, and so much of the Misty Copeland the the first Misty Copeland Under Armour ad is that it's her story being told in her word. Well, I mean, kind of not really her words, but you know, it's it's her su- supposedly reading a letter of rejection she got, but you're hearing you know about her life uh, from her and that's what yeah this one reminded me of that is just and i remember at the time not to say i'm like the biggest ballet follower but i i did not know who misty copeland was but i really wanted to know after that i had the same instinct here it's like oh i've got to go read about this person and then you start hearing about that you know with misty she she obviously through her own talent not through under armor but you know through uh you know she became this national icon global icon uh, and so it got me excited. I said, you know, so far, uh, Under Armour has a really good track record of who they partner with and how those people go on to do. So, uh, you know, here's hoping on this one. Uh, Tim, also, we want to tee up. Uh, you're going to be you're going to have a roundup of all the, the great Halloween ads 
this year, uh, and we wanted to feature one of them, but you're going to be doing a lot more on the site, right? Yeah, we are going to be doing uh, a whole roundup of Halloween stuff, um, the spots and activations and stuff that a bunch of marketers have been doing, hopefully probably Monday or maybe early Tuesday on Halloween. Maybe we'll post that. Uh, I did want to mention uh, one spot that broke on Friday, and it's from Xfinity, and it kind of fits this trend this year of kind of longer form horror short films that we've been seeing. Um, Fox and Mars Candy Brands uh, did the Bite Size Horror Films a couple weeks ago. Uh, Hulu did some long-form stuff that was cool uh, that was called Huluween. And so um, this new Xfinity spot is from uh, Goodby Silverstein and Partners. Uh, it was written and directed by Dante Ariola, who's an MJZ uh, director. And it's it's five minutes long, and it's, it is very spooky. Um, we're not going to play anything uh, from it because there's no dialogue. It's just a, you know, there's a bunch of screaming in the middle that, that won't really clue you into what's going on. But uh, the guy in the spot basically puts on this old mask that's left on his doorstep. Um, you know, don't put on burlap masks if you don't know where they're from. It seems to be the moral <laughs> of the story. Um, and maybe even if you do. <laughs> and, yeah. And so it's this mask seems to be possessed and causes him to have a very bad afternoon. And the the one thing that's kind of amusing is that the uh, Xfinity product, they have a new product um, around home security. I think it's called it's just called Xfinity Home, where you set up cameras around your house and then you can uh, watch what's happening. It's almost like closed circuit TV. Uh, so, some, you know, the police are in, investigating what's happened in this house, and they, they use this product to go back to Halloween, which is a day or two earlier, to see kind of what happened to this guy and why he went crazy and why the house is a mess. So um, not exactly the subtlest product integration, and, you know, it kind of made me long for the uh, bite-sized horror stuff that had no product in it. Um, but, you know, Xfinity's got to sell some stuff as well, I suppose. But, um, you know, really well made in terms of cinematic, uh, the way it looks, the way it was shot and cast and all that. Uh, it was pretty good. So, um, you know, they, it is a trend, the long-form stuff this year. And we'll, we'll compile a bunch of those together for you on the site this week, along with all the other creepy stuff that advertisers have been doing. Yeah, and by the way, I, I went as a scarecrow one year for Halloween, and all I did was, like, wrap burlap, you know, into a vaguely mass shape and then cut some holes for eyes and i think i like sewed the mouth shut uh it, it literally took me i think half an hour and i have never terrified more people <laughs> than wearing that it's like everywhere where people are like you should do not wear that take that off right away burlap is frightening <laughs> yeah there's just something about it uh and i did appreciate to your point about not wearing masks that <laughs> show up on your doorstep uh i appreciated that he actually chose not to and i think he even threw it away uh, and then he wakes up in his sleep and like goes down and and puts it on. So so they imply that even if you don't want to, that this evil mask somehow <laughs> makes you wear it. But yeah. I was just like giving them points for like okay, because if this dude just puts on a random burlap, it's like <laughs> yeah, I don't care about lice. I'll just throw this thing on. Right. Uh, I mean, maybe he doesn't have any hair. No, dude. Dude's got hair. He's. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, well, it is time to move on. Uh, we are going to move on to some uh, different panelists. Welcome to more. But thank you, Christina, for joining us. Always great to have you. Bye, guys. All right. Time for our big discussion of the week about our, yeah, about our uh, annual hot list. All right. Now we are joined by uh, two more colleagues to talk about this week's or this year's, I guess, hot list for the publishing industry. Uh, as we mentioned a little earlier, the hot list is uh, broken into three parts, actually, where Adweek looks at kind of the hottest names in three different industries. One is tech and uh, digital. Uh, one is television and one is publishing. And so this time around, we're going to be talking about publishing. Our list uh, for 2017 just came out. And with us now to talk about that are Lauren Johnson, a senior editor on the digital and technology beat who wrote this week's cover story on Martha Stewart. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks for having me. And also Sammy Main, a frequent podcast guest and staff writer covering the digital media industry who wrote quite a few items in the, this year's hot list. Uh, welcome, Sammy. Um, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
All right, we're going to dive on in because there is so much to talk about, and I'm 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 excited to see how much we can uh, we can squeeze in here. Uh, first off, Lauren, tell us a little bit about Martha Stewart. She was our Media Visionary of the Year. This one, the highest honors we give each year. It's a bit of a not even so much a lifetime achievement as just kind of acknowledging that someone really is continuing to shape the landscape. Uh, you wrote a great piece. I really encourage everyone to check it out. Um, but tell us a little bit about why we picked Martha Stewart for that honor. So, yes, we picked her because when you think of, uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of home lifestyle brands, Martha can stand by her own. But it's, it's, you don't even need the last name, honestly. <laughs> it's just Martha. And um, she has really built this brand since, you know, basically the 70s, really, when she left Wall Street and started her own catering business, which then obviously turned into um, her first book, which then led to the magazine, which then led to TV, which then led to all these retail and brand uh, extensions of it. No one kind of understands that market better than Martha does, and it all really stems from the media uh, point of view and the, the magazine and the print things that she did ahead of time that have now kind of put her ahead of the curve. Um, so I really enjoyed interviewing her a lot. She's one of my idols, <laughs> and uh, oh, nice. it was it was a lot of uh, fun to work on. So now you know what's funny is uh, when I was in college, uh, Lauren and I both went to the University of Missouri, but at different times. And when I was there in the '90s. I was in the magazine program. No one could stop talking about Martha Stewart. No one could stop talking about the aesthetic and kind of the continuity that she brought to the magazine industry. You know, up till then, everything was about being kind of glossy and hip and cool looking. She was like, you know, if I remember right, there were color patterns, uh, you know, basically palettes for each issue. And even the advertisers had to follow those palettes. <laughs> like mm -hmm. everything had to look consistent. She just brought this kind of professionalism and and new level of maturity to you know to the magazine industry which was already you know a pretty you know aesthetically focused industry what what else did you kind of learn about her impact in talking to her and talking to others in the industry about that actually I talked to um, Gail Towie who was her uh, was her art director I believe when she launched the magazine and then went on to spend you know, 20 plus years working at Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. And I think what she what she brought and changed uh, to the market was just was just kind of what we're talking about. She brought a fresh perspective on things and kind of also threw off a lot of naysayers in the process. I think a lot of people questioned if, you know, if people would be into this type of content. Could you make uh, upscale content like how to make gravy accessible to uh, mainstream America and how much, you know, how much appetite was there really in that sort of stuff. And she proved that there is an appetite when you have the right kind of vision and, um, uh, you know, kind of like set the tone for what you want to do, which obviously she does is notorious for having a lot of control over things like color palettes. And one of the things Gail was telling me about was... Um, with going back to that whole photography thing is, uh, yeah, up until now, every up until then, everything was photographed um, to be beautiful and to be fit, you know, be shot in a specific kind of light and glossy and that sort of thing. And she kind of, Martha wanted everything to be a little bit more how it actually looked. Mm. So instead of showing, you know, an apple on a table, that's uh, you might show an apple tree or like, you know, apple on, apple on the vine or something like that. So she just kind of brought a different vision. Uh, and she's also a really obviously smart businesswoman who's been able to pull all of this off and, and keep the brand moving to um, the, I guess, the point about you talking and learning so much about Martha when you were at Mizzou kind of speaks to um, what's happened, I think, to a lot of her brand. I mean, at, at, the, at one point, uh, which would seem insane in today's media market. Uh, Martha Stewart Living was producing seven magazines at one time, all over um, you know niche areas like baby and kids and weddings and all of those things uh, were being done, which in today's world se seems a little insane. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's why you see that now only two magazines are published by um, her, Martha Stewart Living and Martha Stewart Weddings. Those are both kind of the two... Um, titles that have shown the most, uh, not only just appetite for advertisers over time, but also just kind of have the strongest brands on their own and can still 
uh, afford to kind of put out the print magazine. But it, you know, time, times have changed significantly, mm-hmm. and I think you've seen her change a lot too. I mean, God, she's got the the show, the show with Snoop, which is pretty amazing, really. When you think about if she would have done that 20 years ago, I don't, I don't know, but she is now. Um, so the t- you know, things have definitely changed, and and she's on board for the ride. You know, one thing I think about a lot with Martha is a quote I saw once of, that says, like, you have the same number of hours in your day as Beyonce. And and it's just this, like, motivational message that all of us can get a lot more done. And I remember when Martha first, you know, hit the scene, just the sheer amount of things she was able to be personally involved in. It dwarfs Oprah. It dwarfs anything. There was a parody book that came out called Is Martha Stewart Living? <laughs> <laughs> and there was this uh, this woman I went to college with would send out, just internally would send out these emails in this fake Martha Stewart tone of, like, you know, today we're going to learn how to, how to design such and such. First, First, of course, you'll need to make your own paper. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it's it, Sammy, I'm curious. You are obviously very embedded in kind of the digital me- media industry, the video industry, the influencer field. What in- impact has she had? Maybe even for people who don't know that a lot of what they do is because of what Martha created. Yeah, if if anything, Martha Stewart is is definitely known for these days, kind of her experimentation and her use of social media. Um, for instance, she's you know one of the first pages who got to experiment with Facebook Live when it was being rolled out and developed. Um, she never ever wants to be you know behind on a trend, um, if anything, and that's true with her coverage of of the lifestyle and home space, and it's it's true in kind of how she distributes and presents it. Um, one of her most viewed Facebook Live um, videos is all about how to iron a shirt because you know millennials still need to learn basic things. Um, so she's she's definitely found kind of a, a new life online and she's all about adaptation and, and staying ahead of things. So it's kind of, you know, no wonder really that, that she's been able to keep up with the times and even lead the times. I think all of her, um, well, sorry, I was just going to say, I think all of the digital and the digital and social stuff is so interesting with her because I feel like that's why you know, I'm I'm not an anomaly. Why I like her so much? It's it's sure. a very uh, there's a lot of millennials who kind of feel like they found the second generation or second wave mm-hmm. of of Martha Stewart through digital platforms and stuff. Because I am not of the age when I remember when the when the print magazine came out in 1990. I don't I don't remember that. I don't have strong feelings about it. My mom does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I feel like there's so many YouTube influencers now who part of their success. And Sammy, you can probably name names, or both of you can. Um, you know, part of their success is that they are kind of, they can cook, they can talk decor, they can, you know, it used to be each of those was a very specific thing. And Martha kind of brought this idea of, I, I think in our story, we call it like this next gen home ec, you know, but she tied all that together in a way that has really created a, a new generation of of YouTube stars too. Yeah. If, if anything, you know, millennials and Gen Z, they, they still need to learn things. And this is just kind of the, the new way for them to, um, kind of learn how to be adults for the first time for, for a lot of folks, this is maybe the first time they're living either alone or at least out of their parents' house. Uh, and there's a lot of things they need to learn. Like just a week or two ago, I was Googling frantically how to correctly soft boil an egg, uh, just because, you know, it's, it's tricky. (laughs) It's harder than you maybe anticipate. Um, so both, both, you know, Martha kind of got her start and kind of became known for this, um, slightly unattainable perfectionist sort of mentality. Um, and and also Ina Garten got her start in the in the catering world. And these are two personalities that people look to for, you know, both the fancy things and the basic things. So uh, it just kind of depends on where the, the audience gets their news or their tips. And they have plenty of places to go. And I, I think Martha for sure kind of set the tone for a lot of these uh, lifestyle vloggers or bloggers or influencers and kind of um, the aesthetic of, of what they post as well. I, I think Martha's got a really good recipe for soft-boiling egg. The first thing you do is raise a chicken. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh there's a story behind that. Actually, her uh, raise, I'm just thinking raising animals. So we talked to her. We did a video with her, which will be out on adweek.com come uh, maybe not today when this comes out on Monday, but this week. 
and we talked to her about Thanksgiving prep, which obviously is, you know, biggest time of the year for her, and found out that this year she will be killing 11 turkeys. 11. Not, ironically, her family is vegan, but... Uh, <laughs> and they're not even her, her daughter. turkeys. She's just going to be going around <laughs> yeah, neighborhoods. exactly. They're for friends and family, but not to be confused with 10. There will be 11 turkeys sacrificed this year. Yeah, she's going to be stalking around farms like, who is number 11? <laughs> All right, uh, we've got a lot more to talk about, so let's cover a few of the other hot items on the hot list. Our Executive of the Year, which is one of our other big um, honors uh, in the media industry, went to Frederick Ryan, the CEO of the Washington Post. It's a pretty fascinating dude for all of uh, the president's kind of dislike of the media and especially often the Post, although I thought it was funny the other day. Uh, his uh, spokeswoman specifically said, I would never cite the Washington Post as a source, and then four hours later tweeted a Washington Post story uh, as, as you know, defending, uh, you know, it was one of those ones about Hillary's campaign paying money for the Trump dossier. But it just kind of shows how central the Washington Post is uh, on, you know, kind of both sides of this debate. Uh, they have become required reading and a really a just massive part of the political conversation uh, every single day. Uh, the Post, uh, you know, has really been a leader in innovation and in their media. Their podcast is fantastic. I'm sure they have many podcasts, but they're, they're one on the president called Can He Do That uh, is a spectacular podcast. Um, uh, Frederick Ryan had previously worked for Ronald Reagan uh, as his chief of staff. So this is not, you know, some kind of liberal media, uh, you know, that a lot of his uh, that the post critics may try to portray. Uh, this is someone with a really fascinating business background, political background. He was a co-founder of Politico uh, before joining the Washington Post. Uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, of Amazon, who now owns the Post, had recruited him, and he's kind of been a big tech uh, innovator. He's really pushed them to do things like uh, the Washington Post created its own CMS, uh, which was really just to help them iterate and, and innovate faster. Uh, but then they licensed that. That out to other publications, and now it's become a good revenue stream. So it goes to show that sometimes innovation, uh, you, you know, has long-term benefits beyond just oh, it makes us look cool. Uh, so definitely a, a key player in the media scene there. The other one uh, that I want to be sure to talk about was our editor of the year. Another big honor. This one went to Michelle Lee uh, at Allure, the editor-in-chief of Allure. Uh, I want to talk about that. You guys are obviously right in her uh, wheelhouse. of. Uh, I, I would say she is one of the most admired journalists uh, of, of almost anyone I could think of in terms of people actually know her by name. People follow her on Twitter. Uh, she led the, uh, you know, she's led so many initiatives. She banned the term anti-aging, uh, and they announced that in an issue featuring Helen Mirren, who is 72 on their cover. Uh, she's made, obviously, a very clear commitment to diversity in the covers, uh, the women they feature on the covers, and in the content that they have online and in print. Their digital traffic's up, according to our article, 24%. Video views are up 400% uh, <laughs> since she came in. And uh, their website redesign has has had a lot to that, and they are very huge across all channels. I am I am very curious, though. Lauren, uh, you know, are you a, a follower of Michelle Lee online? And what do you think she kind of brings to the conversation? Well, it's interesting because I used to, um, this was like six or seven years ago, but I interned at Allure. And uh, it's a much different magazine I, from an out now, just looking at kind of what they've done, it seems like she really has changed stuff around because, you know, the beauty industry is going through, went, is going through this very tough time right now where there's, a lot of people aren't talking about diversity. They're not talking about the same kind of stuff that she's really championed at um, Allure. And for a long time, it, it, you used to see a lot of uh, – I feel like they're kind of leading the charge in terms of talking about these new issues and bringing more people um, new subject matters and that sort of stuff up there because it has gone for a very long time where none of that has basically been discussed in beauty um, – at all, and so I think I really look up to her. I think I think she definitely has not only just a vision for Allure, but to your point, she really has built a brand for herself on Twitter. And um, you know, you might not necessarily associate her with just leading a beauty magazine. She's also leading, uh, you know, just kind of like championing for bigger issues in journalism. Sammy, uh, I wanted to be sure that we also talked about the website of the year, uh, Teen Vogue. Uh, so this is one that's come up quite a bit. I think people who are in the know, so to speak, uh, have been very aware of Teen Vogue's, uh, you know, rise in recent years as a political force, as in a, a, a 
place for conversation that goes far beyond kind of anything that we would think about uh, typically. Uh, you know, how would you summarize kind of the teen vogue of 2017? Yeah, I guess the first word that came to mind was woke, but I don't know that I need to use that <laughs> word more often. Um, the The thing about teen vogue is that either people are finally realizing or some of these kind of younger publications are realizing for themselves that, you know, their their audience and the their readers are super multifaceted and way more interested in, in multiple topics rather than just like the one or two beauty and fashion categories that some of these brands, you know, used to exclusively cover. Um, it's, it's super interesting because, you know, at that age, we're, we're all more diverse than you realize. Um, like in high school, I was both in drama and in our weird eco <laughs> club. I like started an eco club with one of my friends. A little bit to put on our college resumes kind of when we were applying to show that we were presidents of something. Um, but also we really cared about it. Um, so Teen Vogue today is is so, so different than some of the, the teen publications from previously. Like I remember either that magazine or Seventeen, whatever I was subscribing to when I was that age, um, used to have the kinds of articles that were, you know – man, it sucks wearing cute, tight jeans during math class because algorithms are hard. And also we have cramps. Like it was kind of really, you know, kind of reducing a, a lot of the the teen female experience at the time. And so I feel like now these publications aren't afraid to dive into politics or, you know, diversity and inclusivity. And they're they're really mindful of that because, you know, they're they're leading a lot of these conversations. So Teen Vogue for me for today is definitely a really interesting kind of time capsule of of what it's like to be, you know, a youth in America in 2017. And Lauren, we obviously, by naming this website of the year, I mean, they, we, we this went far beyond just, you know, best teen publication or best youth publication. Uh, it, you know, it, it feels like we really are kind of highlighting the fact that Teen Vogue really transcends any of these genres that it's specifically in. Yeah, I mean, Lauren, Lauren Duca does not work for a teen website. I feel like if you were, to, if that's not what people uh, associate her with or really any of quite frankly, any of uh, Teen Vogue's political content. It's just, it has um, definitely transcended that whole uh, idea of what it means to be a teen publisher, and I would I would just classify them as a website, really. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, cover a few other categories. Um, I wanted to fold together a bunch of food conversation, and not just because I love talking about food, but because we had so much food on this list. Uh, And uh, Sammy, you covered quite a few of these, uh, so I will be leaning heavily on you here. But uh, first off, hottest in food was Tasty. Uh, So tell us a little bit about, for those who haven't been following it, what is Tasty and how has it grown uh, in recent, uh, it's more than, what is it, a few years old now? Yeah, so Tasty uh, actually launched in 2015, so it's it's kind of like two and a half ish, three ish years old, um, and it's it's kind of BuzzFeed's social food mega brand. Um, by today, actually, they actually have ten sub brands of Tasty. Kind of, um, there's Proper Tasty from the UK. There's Tasty Vegetarian, Tasty Junior, Tasty Grill, um, and and basically these videos kind of helped. Um, pioneer, I guess, the the food recipe videos you see online, which are basically time lapses and what the industry is now calling hands in pans videos, kind of, you know, showing you step by step um, what to do. And I will give credit, though, to Julia Child because I dug back through some archives. She is the original hands in pans, you know, chef, and she broadcast that, and it was very risky at the time. I've also recently read her autobiography, so I'm a little biased. Um, but basically with, with Tasty, I mean, it gets, you know, so many views per month, and it's totally global. But this year especially, they launched an app to where you can access um, 1,700 of their video recipes, and that can also connect to a smart cooktop that they released, which some of us here kind of called it an intelligent hot plate because um, it kind of – you can set it and it'll it'll do exactly what you tell it, which is helpful – um, but so basically Tasty kind of took over the internet in, in really interesting, fun ways. And there's even a, a customizable cookbook they came out with last holiday season where you get to plug in, you know, what you want in there. Maybe it's all breakfast. 
and then you know they'll send you a physical cookbook. So um, they're they're a total brand now, used very frequently in their NBC partnership um, that that BuzzFeed has um, with their Today Show hosts all the time. Um, it's it's a really interesting look at kind of how um, uh, an experiment turned into like a massive, massive brand. Now, one big winner, probably the biggest winner across multiple categories was Bon Appetit. Uh, They were named the winner in Hottest in Design and Photography, Hottest Food Magazine, and Hottest Reborn Magazine, as we are all magazine journalists, so we love seeing things reborn. Uh, Tell us about Bon Appetit. I have to admit, I have not been following the renaissance of this title. So Bon Appetit, yeah, it it won a a few of our, our... awards or, or titles during this hot list um, package this year. And uh, they're they're really kind of um, refreshed. I guess the food term would be refried, which isn't always <laughs> cute or tasty to <laughs> say about a magazine or a brand. Um, but basically, you know, they're a decades-old brand out of Condé Nast. And in the past year or two, kind of more specifically, they've They've really reimagined themselves. They've, you know, their design and photography especially is super clean and, you know, minimalistic, which are a lot of other food brands have also leaned into. It's very, quote unquote, aesthetic these days. Um, but it's it's really kind of um, new and and fresh and it's it's done, you know, interesting recipes and in kind of new and relatable ways. It's for people who want to, you know, cook their first dinner party or, you know, take their friends out to uh, a cool new restaurant they just heard about. It kind of covers the whole spectrum, but definitely recently it's it's been, um, you know, they had a, a redesign as well. They're kind of new all over again and more relatable than they were previously. Yeah, I mean... Bon Appetit is also, also like, I feel like they're always known for just, like, helping people master the basics. Mm-hmm. That's really what they've always done really well. And over the, you know, now they have that new um, offshoot called Basically, which mm-hmm. is so helpful yes. and amazing. It really <laughs> caters towards millennials, though, because it's simple stuff like how to sharpen a knife. Like, yep. just basic kind of simple tips like that. Um, I feel like they've really kind of found a focus, or a new focus mm-hmm. in that in terms of tailing towards millennials and they also have that thing called healthy-ish which is also healthy-ish. very similar yeah. so they've done a lot of like smart offshoots of the bon appetit mm. mag into mm. other areas too well let's uh I, i'm sure tim probably left about 20 minutes to go to go get a snack and <laughs> probably never came back but tim uh tell us i'm still here <laughs> the, <laughs> the hottest in thought leadership uh was the new yorker uh for this year uh, you and I have probably been debating The New Yorker off and on for the 10 years we've known each other. I've never been a big fan, but I will acknowledge that they have their ability to remain relevant has been pretty impressive. Uh, how how have you seen them evolve in recent years and, and kind of be – it's easy, I think, for them to come off sounding a, a bit – detached from the world in a certain way. Like that's part of what I've never really loved about it is it's a little kind of intellectual elitist. Uh, but but how do you, have they evolved or how do you think they've really kind of maintained their, their voice? I think they've evolved. I mean, we've, you know, we've recognized them here uh, for digital and, you know, they were late to the digital game. I think they didn't even have a website for many years. Uh, but when they did launch a website, you know, they really went, went for it. And, you know, I mean, yeah, they've got a guy in David Remnick, uh, who's the editor there, who is an old school guy. He's been in charge there for a long time. Um, sometimes they can seem a little bit out of touch. You know, I, when I read uh, Remnick's sort of post-election uh, wrap-up story, it felt, you know, like it, it just was missing, uh, you know, some of the point of what happened, you know, in the election. Um, but having said that, you know, they they the thing about the New Yorker that's amazing, their website, um, they break these really huge stories pretty regularly. You know, this uh, they they took over um, Ronan Farrow's story about Harvey Weinstein and really blew, blew that open recently. Uh, they had the huge story about uh, Anthony Scaramucci over the summer. Uh, you know, his call with Ryan Lizza, that whole story went, went crazy. I think according to our story here, it had uh, 4.4 million unique views in, in four days, that story. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, 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 they're a legacy publication that's known for, you know, long reads, uh, but, but their website, um, I think they've really caught up and they've, they're producing some of the best, uh, you know, political commentary in particular. And, and, you know, looking at our whole digital hot list, honestly, um, 
you know, the specter of politics really hangs over a lot of this list. You know, the the giant dumpster fire that, that is our country's political existence at the moment. Clearly, people uh, crave coverage of it. Um, obviously, the Washington Post guy, um, the New Yorker, also Teen Vogue, even magazines like GQ, you know, one of their big hits lately was having Keith Olbermann kind of talk about the resistance, um, CNN and Snapchat, uh, their Snapchat account. So, you know, politics is obviously uh, the story of the day and, and the sites and, and magazines that are covering it well are, are seeing the returns. Well, thank you. I wish, man, we have so much more to talk about. So I certainly encourage everyone to, you know, just go either visit adweek.com or Google Adweek Hotlist uh, Publishing for, and you will find it. Uh, there's so much in there, so much more to talk about. We've got profiles of our editors and executives of the year. Uh, plus, of course, our great cover story by Lauren on Martha Stewart. So definitely check all that out. Uh, don't forget, too, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.